Hi, this is Jay Gilbert. Welcome back to another episode of Music Biz Weekly Podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts. Michael Branvold is out this week, but he will be back next week. We have a really great guest today, but before we get going, I want to thank our sponsors. First of all, I want to thank uh, Banzoogle. Uh, Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. Banzoogle powers the websites for tens of thousands of musicians around the world, from weekend warriors to Grammy winners. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Music Biz uh, Weekly podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com and try it for free for 30 days. Use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY, all one word, MUSICBIZWEEKLY, to get 15% off your first year of any subscription. Also, we want to thank our friends over at Disc Makers. We know it's a digital world, but there's still an important role for physical media in today's independent musician. Digital royalty payments are so small that selling products like CD, vinyl, T-shirts at gigs and live streams, of course, have become an important income generator. For every CD that you sell at a gig, you'd need roughly 3,000 streams to make up the same amount of money. That's a lot of streams. So our friends at Disc Makers are the place to go for your discs and other physical media like vinyl, USB drives, and even T-shirts. So go to uh, Disc Makers and use the code FREEBIZ and you'll get up to $150 in uh, free shipping. So get free shipping on any CD CD orders of 100 or more from Disc Makers with the code free biz. We'd also like to thank our friends over at uh, HypeBot, uh, Bruce and his team over there. We really appreciate everything you do for us. So today we have a really great guest, Chris Aaron um, from the MLC, and he's going to explain the Mechanical Licensing Collective, what they do, and why you need to know about it. So let's roll. Build a stunning band website in minutes with Bandzoogle. Go to bandzoogle.com to start your free 30-day trial and use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. Today we're joined by Chris Aaron, the CEO of the Mechanical Licensing Collective. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Good to see you. Good to be here. So tell me a little bit uh, about, before we get into what the MLC is, let's talk about you for a second. How did you wind up at the MLC? What's your background? (laughs) It was a long and winding road to uh, quote a lyric we all know. Um, You know, like so many people in the industry, Jay, I started out as a kid playing music. Um, I'd love to say, you know, I started out picking up a guitar and playing rock, but you know, I was singing in the elementary school choir and kind of fiddling around on the piano when I was in elementary school. And it, it just clicked for me. Something was magical for me about music. And, um, and I, as I got older, I wanted to do more and know more. And you know, I did wind up playing in bands in high school. Um, I have vivid memories of lugging a, a really heavy, you know, uh, Roland keyboard a mile up in the you know the woods to my buddy's house on the other side of the woods to go play music all day um, or late into the night and 
you know, kept that going into college. And I think like all of us, at some point, you, um, you either realize that you are destined to be the performer, the writer, um, or you're not. And, uh, and I don't think I was. I don't want to close the door completely, but it, it wasn't my path. Yeah. And that started, you know, started me thinking about what else can I do that connects me to this, this magical thing that we all love. Well, I think that's really important to have that experience because when you speak to artists, managers, label, distribution, publishers, whoever it is, you've got a little bit different take on that. And I, I really appreciate that. And, and I like it when I meet people within the business who were in a garage band or toured or, you know, sang in choir. There's, you know, there's one thing for me to tell you how hot this candle is. It's a whole nother thing for you to put your finger in the flame. So I actually, you know, appreciate that. So what kind of music did you play? <laughs> um, lots of different stuff as a, uh, as a high school kid, um, played a lot of synth pop and, um, and then just classics. Cause you know, when you're in high school, everybody learns the classics, um, some prog rock. I remember playing a couple of rush tunes in the talent show. Oh. Um, that was a trip. So um, you had some chops. <laughs> uh, well, I was the keyboard player. So the chops tend to be with the drummer and the guitar player and, and the bass player. But, um, yeah, and I was no getting Lee on the vocals, uh, by any stretch. But um, yeah, a real mix. And then as I got into college, I, I shifted more um, and, and did more theatrical stuff. I was a theater minor in college. So I did a lot of musical theater, performing that way. Um, did one semester in the jazz band, but realized that playing jazz at the college level is not like playing jazz in high school in yeah. a small town. And I did not have the chops for jazz. Um, and then when I got to law school, um, which was one of those turns um, in the long and winding road for me, I played in an acoustic trio with two other um, uh, performers and we, we wrote some songs, played acoustic guitar, all of us sang, and, uh, and that was kind of it for Very me. Cool. From that point on, I stepped, I receded uh, out of the spotlight and, um, and now I play for my kids at home, but that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's awesome. So, you were a musician. You you got to learn what it was like to play a live show, to write, record, those types of things. Tell us the, the next step. Where did you go after that? Well, I will say this, the, because it, it kind of picks up on the point you made. There are those moments. You have those very specific memories that give you a glimpse into the reality of the music business. So, you know, one of them for me was it, when I was playing in that trio, we, uh, we used to play gigs um, kind of up and down uh, Virginia, Southwest Virginia. I was in school out there. And um, I remember we got this gig up in Harrisonburg at a venue that, you know, was a regional venue. And we were really excited. And we showed up and our name is on the marquee. And then we walk in and no one's there. And I think we played for three people. And, you know, what we realized was it's not just about showing up and getting the gig, convincing the venue to put you on stage. It's have you built a fan base that's going to show up and see you? And of yeah. course, we've done no marketing at all. We didn't know anybody there, so no one showed up. And that was a real um, stark kind of lesson in, in what it means to make a living playing music. Yeah. You can be great, and I'm not saying we were, but being great doesn't mean people are showing up and paying 20 bucks to see you play. That's so right. So that, that was a moment. Um, and then 
In the other moment, I remember uh, attempting, and, and I did succeed in registering a copyright for a little three song demo that we had recorded in a, in a local studio. And I just remember trying to figure out like, how do I do that? And what am I registering? Is it the sound recording and the musical composition or is it both? And um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now in law school, so it's not like I'm a novice, but it was not obvious, it was tricky. And yeah. so that kind of really, you know, helped me to see how the business part of the business is really complicated and you can be super successful and it's still really complicated. Yeah. And um, so that, that really helped me to appreciate how, how much we, we owe our creators um, to help them understand how the business works for them so they can maintain um, control of their business. Yeah. And that's obviously yeah. not something that, um, you know, uh, always happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a perfect segue because you just touched on something that's really important and that this business is very complicated in some ways. You know, when you're talking about rights and you're talking about publishing and you're talking about, you know, uh, the master and the song and for someone from the outside, uh, because I've had these conversations, it can be mind-numbing, uh, the minutiae that's involved. So let's, let's start at the beginning with, with the difference between, let's say, a song and then a recording. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it sounds pedantic, but it's actually very important. Absolutely. And, and again, even at that level, what you see immediately is the disconnect between how a creator thinks about what they're creating and then how we look at that through the lens of the rights involved. So when you sit down to write a song, right, most folks are sitting with an instrument in some way or they're humming along and they are both performing and writing simultaneously. Right, it's it's pretty rare, and I mean certainly there have been examples. You know, I think it was Beethoven was who lost his hearing, and he Just was still wrote the composing. Out. Yeah. So it was all in his head. But most most people are are performing and creating simultaneously. And today, with all the digital equipment, you know, it's as easy as to sit and record on your phone. So that distinction between the composition, the musical work, and the recording of the performance is one that most creators don't think about when they go to work that day. Um, And yet again, there are two very important and different sets of rights that are implicated when they do that. And and folks have to understand the difference. So for that, the musical work, that's all about the song, the composition, um, the thing that can get reduced to to musical paper, right? That we remember when we were kids playing the recorder. And then there's the recording of the performance. And, and whether that's a demo or, you know, that's produced on, um, you know, your laptop or the biggest studio in the world, that recording of a performance is the sound recording. And those each have different sets of rights and most importantly, different revenue streams. That's the thing I think that's always helpful. It's connected back to the money because, you know, folks trying to make a living, the money matters. And right. um, those are two different ways they can be paid. Yeah, and I, I think that's really important. Um, you talk about copyright owners having um, exclusive rights. Um, and there's really a few of those that are key. And I'd love to kind of get your insights on those, you know, uh, performing, you know, that song publicly, 
reproducing that song, let's say on a CD or vinyl or something, and then distributing uh, that work. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit to kind of help uh, people understand? Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you touched on um, the two kind of key licenses on the, on the sound, um, I'm sorry, the musical work side, right? The, the mechanical license and the performance license. Um, the mechanical license is called the mechanical license because it dates back to the 1909 Copyright Act when um, it was designed to protect the rights of the people who made the player piano rolls. Um, and music was literally made mechanically because you put a roll into Literally that. mechanically, yeah. Someone would spin it, right? Um, and um, uh, and so that, that right implicates both that reproduction right, the making of the copy of that musical work, and then, um, as you alluded to later, um, that work can be recorded um, on phono records, um, CDs, vinyl, now download streams, and that reproduction right, the making of copies, the thing that really transforms it into a product yeah. that we put out into the, into the stream of commerce, right? Um, that's a second piece of that, um, that mechanical license. So those, those two rights are very important. Um, ironically, for songwriters, the third one, the performance right, has been in many ways the one that they know the most and that felt most relevant historically because that was the right that related to radio. You know, when you played a song on the radio um, or if you played a song in a bar, that implicates the right of public performance. And, um, you know, the performing rights societies in this country, a couple of them date back, you know, a lifetime or more. Um, yeah for I think near 100 years or more. So um, that performance right wow. is a separate right. And yeah. um, again, so each of those is important, but we think about it from a revenue stream as the mechanical uh, right and the performance right. And gotcha. those are different. And again, separate revenue streams. So for performance rights, are we talking ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, things like that? What's the difference between a performing rights organization or PRO, what's the difference between that and the MLC? Because the MLC is not a PRO. Correct. We, we look like the PROs in that we are um, what is sometimes referred to as a collective management organization. We manage um, a set of rights for a lot of people but the PROs are performing rights organizations. They administer performing rights, essentially. Um, and the mechanical licensing collective will be administering um, a mechanical right. So the, the way that we often simplify it is um, the rights that we administer, we're the exclusive administrator for those. So if you are entitled to be paid a mechanical royalty um, from the MLC, the only place you'll be able to get that is from the MLC. And uh, similarly, if you're entitled to a performing right or royalty, uh, you need to go to a PRO to get that. We can't give you the performing royalty. They can't give you the mechanical rights that we administer. That is really helpful. And it really kind of divides those two and makes it really clear to, to understand. Um, some of these things you just mentioned, you know, like 100 years old, a lot of what the music industry is built on is decades, if not centuries old. And it's, it's really exciting for me to kind of see the Music Modernization Act and the MLC and to see how things, it's like moving this big 
aircraft carrier very slowly, but it's, it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like just in the last couple of years, we went from really slow progress to all of a sudden things are starting to ramp up a little bit. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, and you're right about the industry, you know, um, it, and it's interesting because the, the model, the business model for the music industry was pretty fixed for decades. Um, you know, when I first started in the business, um, right around the turn of the century, um, the way that, you know, record companies and publishers made money looked a whole lot like the way they made money in the 50s and 60s. And, um, you know, the formats had evolved a bit. It, you know, we weren't at that time making most of the money on vinyl. Um, but, you know, most of us working in the industry certainly were old enough to remember vinyl. That's how I started my record collection. Me Thank too. God I invested in vinyl, not A-Tracks, because those A-Tracks are not worth anything. <laughs> Uh, but, um, you know, whether you're selling a record on CD or cassette tape or, or eight track or vinyl, um, the way that the mechanics of the business work were essentially the same. So, you know, the idea that you could have a business that was that large and that successful essentially operated under the same business model for 40, 50 years, it's pretty extraordinary. And then along came Napster and, and the internet uh, revolution and digital really um, transformed everything. Um, thankfully, it didn't um, destroy everything, but it did force us all to change the way we think about everything. And yeah. you know this um, uh, from the things that you do, Jay, but it, you know, it didn't just change the way we distribute music, it changed the way we market music and the way we connect with fans. And so I think every aspect of the business has been grappling with those transformational pains um, really for the last, 10, 15 years. And I think now um, with, um, with streaming really picking up and resonating, it, it feels like it has made that shift um, into the digital environment. And, um, and it's exciting because it, you know, we're growing again. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something, you know, you and I spent a big chunk of our careers riding the roller coaster down not knowing if it was going to end with a with a dip going up or it's just going to crash and burn, um, and that was unnerving. But um, yeah. you know we're now on that upswing and we're growing, and that's great for all of us. Yeah, that's it's really exciting. Let me let me ask you about uh, kind of a comparison. For example, with sync licensing, if you want to you know allow someone to use your song in film, TV, commercials, games, whatever. There's no like statutory or compulsory rate. It's negotiated, right? If you want to use my song in your film, if it's a big blockbuster, I may get some serious money for that. And if it's a small thing, it'd be less money. Talk about how that works with, you know, mechanical licenses. With me mechanical license, is it kind of compulsory? Is it negotiated? How does that work? Sure. So you touched on another right, and that right applies both to musical works and actually the sound recordings. That's the synchronization right. When you take a song or a sound recording and then you combine it with video, um, that synchronization of the two is something that under the copyright law requires the approval of the copyright holder. And, um, and they can uh, exercise absolute control. So you could make the greatest movie in the world and have the perfect music for the perfect scene in the movie. But if the owners of the sound recording, the musical work say, not, we don't want you to use it, you're out of luck. 
And, and then of course, what that means is if, if you want it bad enough, um, you get into a pretty interesting market negotiation where that one use, and it could be 30 seconds, that can generate tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even you know a million plus dollars for that one use. That's very different from the way things work on the mechanical side. The mechanical license, uh, again, dating back to section 115, um, has always been subject to uh, what's called a compulsory license. Essentially, there was a way under the law where if you wanted to use a musical work, so if we put video to the side and we just think about you know, that, that performer that wants to record an album, if you had written a song and that performer liked it, as long as that song had been recorded and released once before, gotcha. uh, a first use had taken place, you were free to use that song and to record it a second or third or fourth time. And there was a way for you to get a license, even if the owner of that song didn't want you to record their song. And that compulsory license um, obviously limited the negotiating power of songwriters because um, everyone had that backstop. You know, well, I can always get it at the statutory rate. Um, and that rate was, um, it started out at the two cents a copy and then it increased a little bit over time, but you know, sitting here today, 100 years later, it's at 9.1 cents for a work that you know, is standard in length. So it hasn't changed dramatically. So wow. again, that, you know, that's sort of the baseline and that's on the, the, the sales side, the, the record side or download side. Um, and there is a similar concept under the law for um, compulsory rates for streams as well. So um, yeah, there is no market negotiation for the use of songs in records, audio only uses. Um, there are these compulsory rates that kind of frame the negotiation, and um, and that um, you know that makes it a very different economic um, environment. But it sounds like it's healthier for the business that way, and it it kind of removes some of those hurdles, some of those barriers. It makes it easier for people to record songs that have been released before, as long as they get the license for it it kind of expedites that. Is that accurate? Um, well, it can. There, there, there are a lot of things that are embedded in that. Certainly, you know, one of them was a belief that once a song is recorded that, um, and it becomes a part of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of public consciousness that it's important that others have the ability to reinterpret that work. And, um, you know, that gets to the heart of copyright. Copyright is both meant to protect the rights of creators but at the same time recognize that there is value in iterating on those creations, um, right? Nothing is uh, new under the sun, right? Everything is uh, based on something that came before it. So, um, you know, there, the, the law definitely tried to strike a balance there. I, I think that um, certainly the creator community feels very passionately right now that there should be um, uh, an ability to negotiate in a free market um, environment, the rates that apply to the uses of sound recordings. Um, and that's something that those advocacy groups push for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll be quick to say that is not the role of the MLC. Um, in our industry, there are a lot of organizations that, that both advocate and then also are involved in the operations, but the MLC is very uniquely not an advocacy organization. By law, uh, we are not allowed to lobby for one side or the other. So, you know, I always want to be quick to say, I, I can, you know, explain intellectually how it works, but our role is not to advocate for higher rates or lower rates. It's to make sure that the rates that are set um, are administered properly so that the, the people entitled to be paid get 100% of what they're supposed to. But 
but you're right. It it did that that framework did allow um, some ability for things to work more smoothly. But you know that maybe is a good segue into what wasn't working because as you know, yeah, um, the MMA did not uh, get passed because things were working well. It it, it was passed. <laughs> things were not working that? well. Yeah. Um, so. You know, the, the Music Modernization Act, I was referring to it by the abbreviation the MMA, um, was a pretty landmark piece of copyright legislation passed in 2018 uh, that, that addressed a pretty significant failure in the market that relates to this subject. And, um, and to understand that failure, it's worth going back just for a minute to where we started with the physical formats. You know, back in the days when you were releasing a record with 12 tracks on it and you were limited um, by the number of you know, records that could fit on the shelf of a record company, um, the system that existed dating back to 1909, where you had to clear each musical work one at a time for each use, that worked reasonably well. You know, if I was clearing those 12 tracks, I had to find you know, the 12 companies, if it was one company per track and 12 writers, or you know, if it was two writers, the two writers for that track, but, you know, maybe I was clearing 30, 35, you know, um, sets of rights for those 12 songs. You fast forward to digital, now you've got streaming services that have more than 70 million sound recordings available at any given time, yeah. right? That move to digital means there's, there's no limit on the shelf space. We've got unlimited inventory and um, all of that has to be cleared the same way. So work by work, share by share clearance was not scalable. No. Even though the, the, the market moved to a consumption model that is infinitely scalable. And, you know, I think for music lovers, the, the beauty of that is you have access now to all the music that you could ever want to access. So that, that created the problem. The digital services, in particular, the streaming services, were not clearing all of the rights they needed from, for those songs that were on their service, and they were not effectively paying rights holders. And, um, and it didn't... Um, it didn't, well, I, I say it didn't take too long. There were years and years of advocacy behind the scenes on the part of many rights holders groups to ultimately reach consensus, not only within the industry on the rights holder side, but also with the digital services that we needed a better way. And the MMA um, addressed that by establishing a new blanket license. So now, instead of having to license each musical work one at a time, share by share, a digital service can essentially operate under a blanket license that gives them the right, a license to use any musical work that exists in the world in the United States on those services um, without having to clear them one at a time. That's awesome. That makes the licensing piece of it scalable yeah. and, um, and for the first time brings all those services you know, fully into the realm of operating within, you know, the rights of the rights holders. Yeah. And that's a huge development. So tell me, that's awesome. And thank you. What, what is covered under this MLC license? Um, is it sales, streams, downloads? Am I missing any? Like what, what is covered under the MLC? Yeah, so um, it, is, it is pretty specific. Um, our license covers interactive streams, um, uh, downloads, permanent downloads, and then limited or tethered downloads, which are downloads that you, know, you, you can use on your phone if not, you're not connected to a service, but, um, but they will time out um, and disappear, so they're not yeah. permanent. Um, and, and so it's those two narrow, um, though 
in the case of interactive streams, you know, significant and growing parts of the market. Um, Non-interactive streams, things like satellite radio or internet radio, um, that falls outside the scope of this license. And then and let's talk about. I'm sorry. Let's let's talk about that just for a second. Yeah. If it's non-interactive, that means what? That I can't choose what I'm going to listen to next. Is it that simple? Uh, exactly. So um, radio is a good analog again, right? When when you tune on the radio, um, you can choose a station a genre, exactly. a mood, but you can't say, I want to listen to the accidentals next. Exactly. Unless you hop on the phone and you really badly the DJ. And <laughs> okay, right. fair enough. And that's fair the whole enough. thing, because these days it happens in a different, it's probably all automated, but but exactly right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when you think about some of the, the big services, whether it's like a Sirius XM, right, which is satellite radio. It's radio the way we've always known it, but now it's yes. down from the satellite as opposed to over the airwaves. Um, you can pick a channel and they've got lots of channels and many more now. They're specific to genre. Some of them are even themed by artists. So if you turn on the Bruce Springsteen channel, you sure. know you're going to hear a lot of Bruce, yeah. but you don't know what Bruce you're going to hear. You, you know, it, it could be Thunder Road or it could be, you know. Right. Um, and you can't uh, listen to Thunder Road over and over and over and over again. Exactly. And that's the key. Um, and, you know, Pandora was another service that 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 started out in this space that you know, offered you way to sort of pick um, reference points. Like I like Springsteen, so I want Thumbs to up. generate a Springsteen channel, yeah. me, but it'll play some Springsteen and it'll play some other bands, right? If I if I picked U2, it would play U2, but I'd also hear some of the Alarm and maybe some of the Clash and, you know, other bands that they think are similar based on their algorithms. So the point is, you know, non-interactive means you don't get to pick in that moment the song you want to hear over and over again. And, and there, there are limits on how interactive those services can be in order to operate under their license agreement. So interactive streams would be the service where you fire it up and you say, I want to listen to that song right now, click, it plays. And then you can build playlists and other things like that. And you can listen to playlists that they've created for you, but you always have that control at any moment to say, fast forward, stop, change to something else. Gotcha. What's the difference between what the MLC does and what Harry Fox does? So that's a, a great question, and that gets back into history. So Harry Fox is one of those uh, organizations. Um, it's been around for decades, and they uh, provided a whole host of administrative services um, to rights holders um, on the publishing side. Um, and also to people who were licensing um, music or musical works. And they were one of the companies that provided administrative services in this digital audio mechanical space before the MMA. So a digital service might hire them and say, I want you to help me clear all the stuff on my service. Mm -hmm. Or they might be hired by a publisher and that publisher would say, hey, I want you to represent incoming licensing requests for me for all of my catalog or a portion of my catalog. So they're an organization that sat in the middle of a lot of relationships between licensors and licensees. Gotcha. Super helpful. Well, tell us, where can people learn more about the MLC? Um, where can they find you online if you're into that sort of thing? If people have questions or want to reach out to you, how can, how can people find you and find out more about the MLC? 
Sure. So uh, we've got a website um, with a ton of content on it, and we add to it all the time. The address for that is www.themlc.com. Okay. Um, it's important to add the the in front of it. It's the MLC. Um, but uh, if you check out our site, um, there, there are a lot of um, helpful uh, pages that explain yeah. how things work. Yep. Um, that talk about how and when people will get paid. Um, there's information that's targeted toward writers, toward publishers, toward DSPs. So um, lots of info. That's one Great. of the things. Fantastic. Um, are you on Twitter? We're on all the social media channels. <clears throat> so yes, you can, uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter, Great. Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> We've got a YouTube channel with some videos that are going up and, um, you know, lots of good educational content there. And uh, actually, I think we've got our first event um, in the works for Clubhouse, which is a, a new social media. Yeah, I'm on Clubhouse. Yeah. People are picking up. Yeah, I just got on. It's kind of amazing. Um, yeah. Lots of people there, really compelling and interesting. And, you know, our, our view um, is uh, we need to reach people wherever they are so that's right for us that's it's right. not about picking one or the other we're trying to be everywhere that people might be looking for information and then hoping to reach them where they are yeah my my old boss mentor used to tell me go to where the party is don't start yeah. your own party. So next thing I know, you know, we'll have a MLC TikTok uh, channel or something, and you guys will be dancing and explaining everything. I, I will not be <laughs> dancing, um, but maybe we'll get some kids to come and do that because, yeah, that, right. that definitely has left me behind. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Jay, thank you. I appreciate the interest and, uh, and really um, appreciate talking today. All right. Take care. Bye. Discmakers.com. Use code FREEBIZ for ground shipping on CD orders of 100 units or more, $150 value.